Hello, dreamers. Welcome back to the show. If this is your first time watching or listening, welcome. Thanks for stopping by. Hit subscribe on the YouTube channel. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at livingthedream506. Share it. Tell your friends about it. All that good stuff. Everything helps. So thanks, at the very least, for just being here. My guest today is the guitarist and founding member of one of the greatest bands of all time, Blind Melon. He's also been known to have a mandolin, banjo, and harmonica in hand. He's a producer, he's a musician, he's a legend. My face still hurts from laughing and smiling like an idiot the entire time I was talking to him. I say this a lot and I always mean it, but it was an absolute honor and one of the highlights of my life to have the privilege to chat with him. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Please give it up for the one and only Christopher Thorne. So I'm here with Christopher Thorne of Blind Melon. It, it's so great to have you here, man. Thanks so much for doing this. Thank Welcome. you. I appreciate it. Thanks. So how are you? I'm great, you know, considering the craziness out there. You know, I almost feel guilty because, you know, I don't feel it as much out here in the desert, but I know there's crazy going on and I know people are struggling out there and it's tough on, on uh, so many people, you know, but I'm doing well and I've been really busy and making a lot of music. So I feel grateful for that, you know. Yeah, where in the desert are you? I'm in Joshua Tree. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah, I have a lot of, I have 35 acres out here in Joshua Tree in a recording studio, and so I'm like, you know, have my own little universe out here. That's awesome. Yeah, I was there a few years ago. I checked out Rancho de la Luna. and That's my neighbor. He's literally, I could see his place, like, he's literally my neighbor. That's a, what a great spot. Yeah, it is. It's legendary. I love that place. I go, you know, I hang out there all the time. When pre-COVID, I was, you know, I was there every, you know, every few days. They're like, hey, come on down. We're making dinner and jamming. Oh, okay, great. You know, it's a good time over there. It's one of my favorite studios I've ever been to. Honestly, I love it. I love the whole, their whole vibe down there is amazing. Have you ever done anything with like the desert sessions or anything like that? Not the desert sessions, but I've played on a bunch of Dave catching stuff and bingo stuff and, um, some other people, like sometimes they're just working with somebody and I just happen to be there and they're like, hey, jump on that, you know, play guitar on that, you know, so it's, it's just always a good time down there, you know, so I played on things that I probably don't even remember I played on. That's awesome. So do you do a lot, you do all your writing and everything there then? I do, yeah, I'm, 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 uh, I'm here. I, I still have a place in LA, but I, I moved the studio out here. So I do, I do everything out here now. Is that, you were, you mentioned to me that you were um, recording the Afghan Wigs album. Is yeah, that where we, you guys did it? Yeah, we just started that, uh, what, two weeks ago. We started, Greg came up. We both took tests. And um, Patrick uh, came up as well. Patrick's his drummer who also plays in the Rack and Tours. Yeah. And uh, so Patrick took a test. I took a test. My whole family took a test. Greg took a test. So that way we could all be around each other and not have to wear a mask and stuff. And my wife, like, shops for the whole week. So we just basically kind of just, you know, stay here and just, you know, hang out and make make music it's a great place to do it yeah it's really great but yeah the new afghan songs are just incredible man i'm really excited i'm really pumped are they previewing any of that anywhere 
not yet. He just started, you know, they kind of really just kind of dug in. We just finished, not just, but Greg's last year we worked on Greg's solo record, Random Desire came out, I think in April, March or April, I kind of forget, somewhere around that period of time. Um, and, um, and then, you know, Greg never stopped. So as soon as he was finished a solo record, he immediately started writing for the wig. So we just uh, started that, like I said, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. So that, that keeps you pretty busy then, eh? That and I work on, you know, I'm working on a, a few other records at the same time. So I'm, 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 I'm usually, I usually have my hands in a few records at one time. Rarely do I, rarely do I get to work on one record at one time. It's usually like, you know, you know, Greg might come for a week and we'll work on wigs, but you know, during that week I'm getting calls from some other client I'm working with. That's like, Hey, can you send me a mix of blah, blah, blah. You know, so it's, it's kind of never ends, but I like it. It's kind of fun to jump around. You know, I'm working on the new blind melon record. Um, I'm working with this, um, kid named Joe Coonan, who I, you know, found is a weird word, but I, I got introduced to at, uh, at a, at the see here now festival, in New Jersey. And we started writing songs and, um, we just finished eight songs, which I'm really, really proud of. I co-wrote a bunch of those songs and, uh, and produced that. So that, that will be coming out soon. So I just kind of finished that, putting the finishing touches on that. The Blind Melon record is sort of ongoing. You know what I mean? We just have lots of material that we're working on. And um, I'm also been writing songs uh, with Danny Clinch, the photographer. Uh, we're also making like an, an, an EP. So, yeah, you know, there's a bunch of stuff always going on. What other, what other bands are you working with? Um, Band-wise, trying to think. Um, that's really it. It's really Blind Melon, Joe Coonan. The Danny stuff and the wig stuff is really that kind of keeps my my plate pretty pretty full for now. There's always some little, you know, one-off things that I that I might do. Um, I wrote some songs for the Candlebox record. Wrote some songs with Kevin Martin last year. Did that. So yeah, I'm staying busy. Nice. Do you do any solo stuff like just you? You know what? I do a lot myself, but it's not, I'm smart enough to know that I can write a song, but I, someone else can deliver it much better than I can. So uh, I'm smart enough to know that. And um, my ego is huge, but it's not, it's not so big that it tells me I should sing and do all that. So, uh, but I, I um, work up the demo and I sing on it and, you know, usually write, finish, flush out the song, write it. And then I usually find somebody who can sing it better. That's why I started working with Joe you know, his voice was incredible. And there's a guy named Davey Dennis that I worked with before with Sonny Boy Thorne. His voice is incredible. So I usually kind of bring kind of somebody in to kind of sing, sing what, I, what I did, you know. But yeah, I'm always working on stuff. I'm actually working on stuff with my son right now. He's only 14, but he's an incredible guitar player. And he just keeps like, I hear him walking around the house playing a riff. And I'm like, what's that, man? Like, let's go, let's go, let's go, you know, record that in the studio right now, you know. So I'm um, working on a bunch of stuff with him. I was kind of doing like a bit of a rock camp with him, you know, over the summer and, you know, just trying to get him in here and jamming, you know, as much as we can and stuff like that. So I'm working on stuff like that too, you know? That's funny you say that. Like when everything shut down, I kind of did the same thing. Everyone was like trying to push homeschooling and my son's only nine. So I was, it basically became music class from morning till afternoon. That's great. That's <laughs> great. My son's always been homeschooled. So he's always had a really flexible, flexible schedule. So, you know, in a year's time of him picking up the guitar, he just, he is so far ahead of me uh, compared to where I was at 14. It's just, it's mind blowing, honestly. He's, he's really, he really has something going on there. So yeah, it's been same thing, COVID hit. And it was like, you know, he's always homeschooled. So he's, he's used to it, but we just started, you know, trying to make, 
trying to make it more fun and getting in the studio and jamming, you know. How long has he played? You know what? He had a guitar for a couple of years, but I would say the last year, it just really came over him and he just got nothing but focused. And he knows like so many Zeppelin songs and he's like studying all the great guitar players. And like, we talk about theory, like I'll teach him a couple things and then he'll go off on his own. There's so much you can do with YouTube and he'll learn and then he'll come back to me and say, Hey, I have a couple questions about like this, like, you know, what's, what's this seventh compared to this seventh. Oh, okay. That's a major seventh. That's a dominant seventh, you know? So I can, you know, kind of get him to the next, the next level. And it's just the best thing ever, you know, cause his taste is impeccable. He listens to everything I grew up on. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like when you were growing up, what was, what were the pillars of your For me, it was, it was Zeppelin, just like him. Zeppelin was a really big one. Zeppelin three kind of changed my life. I would say quite a bit. And then, you know, the obvious ones, the Beatles and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And, but you know, Bob Dylan really changed stuff for me because I first started playing guitar and, you know, it's like the late eighties when I first started playing. So you got your Eddie Van Halen's and guys like that. And I started to try to get to play like that, but I, at some point I thought, man, I'm never going to, I'm never going to be able to play like that. That's just like next level, you know? And around that time I got turned on to blood on the tracks and, and it just really kind of changed my path in the sense that I realized I don't really care about being a guitar hero. I want to be a great songwriter. So, you know, I, uh, I just kind of started focusing more on songwriting and I just became kind of obsessed with Bob Dylan and, and just all kind of great classic songwriting, you know? Yeah. So before you actually got with Blind Melon, weren't you, were you in California um, just well, doing solo stuff? I, I was. I moved out to California in 1988. And um, just to, you know, for the dream, so to speak, you know, I wanted to get a record deal and all that. And um, so I was out there for maybe a year and then I met Brad uh through there was a magazine called music connection this is pre-internet so that's how you met people you know you met them right. through music connection so i had an ad looking for a bass player you know so i met brad we hit it off became best friends and then a little bit after that he had met shannon and said hey man i found the singer blah blah you should come over and jam with us so that's how i got hooked up with those guys but you know before blind melon in la i just was going on a bunch of auditions i was trying to find you know i was trying to find something I played in this band called the Daisy Chamber. I played bass in this band called the Daisy Chamber for a little bit with my buddy Rami Jaffe, who plays uh, keys in the uh, Foo Fighters now. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. He was also the keyboard player for the Wallflowers, but I was in his band for a little bit right before Blind Melon. But, you know, the day I, I met Shannon, I was like, I'm going to hang out with this guy. This is the one. This is the one. I knew it. I actually knew it when I met Shannon. I was like, oh, wow. Yeah, you're like all the dudes I read about and all the biographies that all the rock and roll biographies, you're, you're just one of those guys, you know? It's crazy what came out of that era, right? Like those front men that just were trendsetters, like, well, Shannon and Eddie Vedder, Kurt Cobain, Chris Cornell, like it just seemed to, it just all happened in like they all five had it, or 10 man. years. Yeah, yeah. They all, they all had it. That was a really prolific time in music, in my opinion. Obviously, it's my generation, so I'm partial to it, you know. But, you know, with the guys that you just mentioned, you know, and Lane and, like, I mean, it just, we had nothing but incredible, amazing singer-songwriters that just, you know, had something to say. It wasn't like the 80s, let's talk about girls and cars. And, and uh, you know, I don't know. It was. It was a special time, you know. It felt like people had something to say. And, and out of that time came some of our all-time great singers. Chris Cornell, I mean, my God, you know incredible 
it's like you said, the, the lyrics just started to really have substance. In they the, did. Right, right then. And then that's, that's what, what, that's what changed between 80, between, you know, between 88, when I got to LA and when I got to LA, this is 88. So you still got a foot in metal. So I'm going to the coconut teaser and everyone looks like they want to be kind of, you know, kind of guns and roses, which were cool, but also some of it was a little more metally and not as cool. And then I'll never forget the day um, Mookie Blaylock, who was Pearl Jam, they came through town and they played a place called Club With No Name. And it just felt like a light switch went on and it was like, oh, shit's changed now. Like that's the bar. And Eddie was hanging from the rafters. We had never seen anything like it. You know what I mean? It was the most real, authentic, because we had been seeing, you know, this little metal stuff with the kind of the teased hair and, and then suddenly Eddie comes out and he's, you know, he looks like he just got off work and he's, you know, hanging from the rafters and it was electric, man. That show changed a lot. I have a, my really good friend, Burko, who actually is a, is a, is a big manager now, manages uh, AWOL Nation. He, um, he tells me that's the day, he was in a band at that time. And he says, that's the day that I went, I'm not going to be in a band anymore. Like, I can't match that. You know what I mean? I'll never be as good as that. So he went into the business and did quite well for himself. But um. Yeah, it changed a lot that time. Yeah, like the the rock and roll live scene was like good performances and a little bit of showmanship. But like you said, when Eddie, he flipped the switch with like artists really being abstract and just yep. doing whatever the fuck they wanted to do, right? It was incredible. The songs felt really inspired and special, yeah. So yeah, that that, that, that really happened between, you know, 89, 90, 91, and then the second Nirvana comes out, you know, then it's just, it's wide open at that point, you know, and we had Nevermind before it came out because we were talking to a lot of the A&R people who had, you know, wanted to sign us. So we had like the cassette before it came out and it felt like, oh shit, things are going to be different from this point forward, you know? Yeah. And, and they were. Definitely. Yeah. And all these sounds were kind of in the same vein, but they were so original in their own way as well. And same, same goes for you guys. Like what, what were all the inputs that gave you guys your signature sound that was just so unique and original? I think that just comes from five guys who are all trying to pull the song in a certain direction. You know what I mean? Like that's how yeah. a band kind of comes up with their sound many times. You know, if it's one guy, there's one vision, but when you have five guys all kind of fighting and wanting it, you know, I want it to sound more like a Zeppelin song. I want it to sound more like an Almond Brothers song. I want it to sound more like a Bob, you know what I mean? And with that, everybody's influence, you know, you create a sound. And I always thought our sound was, even though we got lumped in with grunge, because it really just because of the time period, we were not grunge. We, we didn't have that sound, you know. Those guys from the great Northwest had a very specific thing they were doing. And we weren't doing that, but we were a part of it. You know what I mean? I think yeah. we had a little more classic rock in us, but... You know, I think our sound just comes from, like I said, like everybody's individual influences trying to kind of pull the song in that direction. And then you don't get, you don't get, you know, a derivative sound. You don't get a song that j just sounds like, oh, I can tell you love Zeppelin, you know. It's like, there's, it's all the influences involved in a song that makes it, that can turn it into something new and special. And that's hopefully what we did. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> that goes without saying. Um, <laughs> and then like, I hear you guys, like you used to talk and still do about the lyrics and like the message that you guys were trying to convey back then. What exactly like would you say in your opinion was that message? Like what was the blind melon feel and message? 
I mean, I won't, I can't speak to that because I think it's unfair because I didn't write, uh, you know, those lyrics that Sh Shannon wrote. I, it's hard for me to, you know, I can't say what he wanted to say, you know, but I could say that Shannon definitely wrote lyrics in a very different sort of abstract, you know, in an abstract way. You know what I mean? He wrote incredible lyrics. He, re he, re he really did. They weren't literal and you kind of had to find the meaning in there. And Shannon loved when you kind of didn't know what he was talking about, but we, we usually kind of knew as a sort of an inside joke many times, but many times other people wouldn't know what he was talking about. But I tell you what, you know, he wrote about our life and he just wrote about what we were going through in the moment. He wrote about growing up in a small town. We were all small town, you know, kids who came out to LA for the dream and that's in there, leaving home, you know what I mean? Missing home, you know, you move across the country, you leave your family, all that goes in your 20, you know, it's a very, it's an incredible, fruitful time, you know? So um, he wrote about everything that we were going through, you know? We saw an unfortunate situation with, you know, somebody jumping off of a, of a roof and, you know, ending her life and that turns into, you know, Sandra's Hall, you know? So it's like everything that we were going through, he was writing about, you know? Yeah. That, what a crazy story that is. It uh, was. I don't even know. Like, I have so many questions without actually having one question to ask in words. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, like, what a crazy time. How, how long was that still relevant to you guys after it happened? Like, was it something that was always on your mind for, like, the next I don't think it ever goes tour? away. I don't think yeah. it ever goes away. I think when you see somebody do something like that, it affects you in such a profound way forever. It's not, it's not one of those things like, like, Oh, cool. Sometimes gone past. I, I'm over that now. I mean, it, you know, when I think about it, it, it breaks my heart to think about, you know, as a parent now, I think, man, she had a dad and a mom, you know what I mean? Like she's free, but her parents aren't free right now, you know? So it, it's still, it's still, you know, when I think about it, it it's, it, it will always affect me to, to, you know, and, and it was just the circumstances of having such an amazing moment, having a great show, being backstage, high five and cheers, drinking, but, you know, having the, you know, like, oh, we're living a life, man. And then in one fucking second, you look across the street and someone jumps off a roof. It just immediately, you know, it puts, put, it, put, it put a lot of things in perspective for us. And I think when you're that age, you take a whole lot for granted. You know, you definitely feel like you're immortal. That's for sure. So just seeing somebody's life disappear in front of you, you go, oh shit, we're not immortal. And you know, so that, it, it hit us, it hit us, it hit us in a, in a big way. Yeah, what, what year was that? Do you remember? Well, it's gonna be the very beginning of the tour. It's, it's St. Andrews, so we're playing that size place. It's probably 90, record comes out in 91. It could be somewhere between 91 and, no, 92 maybe. Somewhere around 92 probably early to middle yeah 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 that's that's crazy what was what was the experience like being just propelled into stardom like that so quickly you know well we had a good long year where nothing happened so we were also humbled because this is what happened we got a record deal everyone told us we were going to be the next big thing and we of course believed it and, um, you know, it felt like we were going to be the next big thing. You know, Shannon's, you know, singing with Axel on Don't Cry. We're a brand new band that's about to release a record. It felt like, wow, we're teed up, man. This shit's going to go. We're going to be gold in a week. You know, I remember we were just so pumped, you know. And then the record came out and it just didn't. You know what I mean? It, it, like we were doing okay, but it wasn't like it just wasn't selling off the shelf. That's for sure. 
And then, you know, maybe over a year of just grinding and touring and just we played nonstop for probably a year and a half. And then out of nowhere, no rain happens. So, but by that time, we're fucking exhausted. You know what I mean? We're over it. We think we're going to make a new record because we had just toured, you know, over a year and a half. So we're thinking, okay, let's go make a new record. And then they're like, well, let's just do one more single. So then that happens. And then, I mean, that then at that point, it was overnight. So it wasn't overnight from the day we released the record. It was a year and a half of grinding in a van. And then the overnight happened with MTV. Because back in those days, that was the, that was the portal for success. And they had a thing called Buzzbin. And if you got in Buzzbin, it basically meant we're going to play your song so much everyone will hate you and you'll sell shit tons of records. So, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> we're going to play your song every fucking 20 minutes and you're going to, you know, you're going to do well and people will hate you. Um, kind of. But that's, so that's kind of what happened. So I would say overnight, overnight it happened when Buzzbin happened. And I remember the exact day because the song gets released, the video goes up to MTV, they immediately start playing it in Buzzbin. And we were on tour, we, we were already on a tour playing, you know, kind of smaller clubs and stuff. And we were playing a place called Mississippi Nights, which is in St. Louis. I know that's confusing. Mississippi Nights <laughs> is in St. Louis. And uh, it's right on the water, great place. And I remember you stay in a hotel right across the street from the venue, so you can kind of see the venue and the water actually, the Mississippi River is right, right there too. So. So I remember looking out my window, waking up and looking out my window because I heard noise and I just thought, oh, that's, oh, wow, there's a parade or something. That's cool. There's a parade going on. There's a giant line down the block. And I just thought, oh, I must be a parade. And then somebody recognized me and started yelling because I like looked out the window. I was on the whatever, third floor or something. And I'm like, holy shit, those people are there for us? That's crazy. And because we had already booked a tour, we had booked it in small clubs because at that point, you know, we're only playing to 300 people a night, you know. So overnight, there's, you know, whatever, 2,000 people standing outside of a club that only holds, you know what I mean? So yeah. that tour was mayhem. So every spot we went to and, you know, they didn't, for whatever reason, we didn't change venues. So it was just, it was just mayhem because we had more people outside than in the clubs. And so that part was overnight, you know. And it was crazy. It's hard to put into words. It's just crazy. You know, your dreams are coming true, but you're really tired. I mean, at that point, we were pretty burnt, too. But it's an amazing experience, man. It feels like you get launched into the universe, and you just kind of have to buckle in. I mean, it's a, it's a ride, for sure. The clothesline of cold eyes washing away the face before. Now tell me what's wrong. You see, everyone's gone. You got to do your best to decorate this dying day.
yourself in it? Of course you do. I suppose, right? Yeah, yeah, you do. It goes without saying. Yeah, yeah, you do. You know, what changes is, what changes is everyone treats you differently. You know, like people, it's funny, people say it in a different way. People go like, oh man, you changed from success. It's like, no, everyone else around me changed and everyone else looks at me and treats me differently right now. I'm still the same guy I was six months ago. But now when I walk in the room, everyone feels different to me. I'm not different. You know what I mean? So it kind of goes both ways. It's like, you're being different to me. I'm still the same guy. That's <laughs> but, but now suddenly you're treating me differently. Now, now you're treating me as if I'm something more than I was six months ago. I'm the same fucking kid from Pennsylvania. You know what I mean? So that kind of fucks with your head a little bit. Right. You know. That's cool. That's a cool way to put it that I've never really considered is like, you didn't change. Everybody else changed. And then it's just the perspective that changes. That's how it yeah. feels. That's how it felt to me. And it was something that no one ever said that to me, but I just was like, man, I still feel like I'm the same. And it just, and you could just see how, you know, all the business people treat us different. The fans treat you differently. Like, you know, suddenly, I don't know, just, it just felt like things, just that part of it kind of changed. And part of it's super fun. Cause you're getting treated like you're a fucking King for no reason. You know what I mean? Just cause you sold more records, you know? But in your mind, you're like, yeah, but I'm the same guy I was six months ago. So now suddenly I'm more special because I saw, you know, so, you know, all that is just kind of wrapped into it. But let me tell you something. It was incredible. I don't like to hear anybody fucking talk shit about success because it's about the, it's as, it's as amazing as you can imagine. It's as, it was surreal. That's the world word I kept using during that time period. Everything felt so surreal and I couldn't keep up with all the amazing things that were happening. Like things happened so fast when the hit happened, you know, it's like, it's like, you know, one week you're like, hey, you're opening up for Neil Young. We're like, oh my God, that's the greatest news ever. And then like a week later, like, oh yeah. And by the way, when you're done that tour, you're going to go hop on the Stones tour. So you're just like, oh my God, I'm still trying to be excited about the Neil Young tour. And then now we have the Rolling Stones. And then, you know, two weeks later, like, oh, now you're on, you're going to be on the cover of Rolling Stone. You're like, what? You know what I mean? Like shit happens so quick. So I don't think I processed it, most of it, until after Shannon died is the truth. Because I think you're on the treadmill and you're just, your whole life is booked. You just know what you're doing, you know, for the next couple of years. So I think when it ended and I finally had time to sit down and think of everything, I was like, oh my God, what, what just happened, man? You know, you can't keep up with it as it's going because it was really happening that fast, you know. But we had an amazing time. It was an incredible experience. It really was. I mean, it was all of our boyhood dreams were coming true. And, you know, and you feel like you're going through it with your brothers you know what i mean and, and that feels special because it's the only people who really know that feeling are really the five of us you know what i mean yeah that just happened so fast and you guys were so young to just i mean just non-stop right yeah that that too when you're sorry I'm, i just dropped something <laughs> that funny. too yeah when you're that young you know and um all of it is just such a life shift you know <clears throat> You know, you're used to being broke and then suddenly like, you know, that changes and that changes things too, by the way. People treat you differently too when you get money. You know what I mean? Now suddenly you're a different because your bank account's different and all that was weird to me. But fun. But fun. <laughs> I ain't complaining, man. I am not complaining. <laughs> right. Like, like I said, you guys were so young. Did you ever get a chance to experience live music as a fan? like before like it just happened so young were you ever in the crowd and you get to mosh to the bands you liked and stuff I like mean, that a little bit you know i grew up in pennsylvania in a tiny little town in york pennsylvania dover even smaller 
So like I had to go to, you know, DC or Philly to see really, you know, bigger shows. And I, you know, I had seen, you know, ACDC and I saw the Grateful Dead a bunch, but we didn't really have like a scene where I lived. So I wasn't like hanging out at clubs and doing stuff like that, you know? So I hadn't seen that much, honestly, when I think about it. Yeah. Like when I really, I saw like ZZ Top, I could probably name them. You know, I saw ZZ Top, you know, ACDC, the Grateful Dead. I saw Cher and uh, Sonny and Cher when I was probably eight, you know, at the Hershey Arena. That was our other big arena, you know. So, yeah, not much. I hadn't seen much. We were pretty green. Yeah. And that, so, like, the music industry, like you said, you're so green. And the music industry was probably just a complete mystery to you. And then all of a sudden, it was slingshot right to the yeah. top. Yeah, it was. I just... I'm trying to process everything and try to keep this going at the same time. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, the new documentary that just came out, all I can say, first off, I, I know you've seen it. What are your thoughts on like how it came together in the final product? Oh, I, I could not be happier with it. I could not be happier with it. And I, and I had seen multiple cuts over the past, whatever, 12 years. I mean, there was a four hour cut at one point and there was multiple versions of this of this movie and I worked on it. So I actually saw it a lot because I did part of the film score. So I spent a lot of time with the movie. I spent a lot of time with certain sections of the movie, I would say, you know, and I'd seen it quite a bit because we also did before COVID happened, we were doing all the uh, film festivals. So right before COVID, what was it last year? I guess we went to Amsterdam and did the international film festival and, and, and we watched it, you know, at every, at every showing then. And so I've seen it a bunch. I think it's really incredible. One, I know how hard it was. So I, uh, you know, cause you're just given 250 hours of somebody's, you know, tapes. So how do you make a linear, how do you make a movie out of that? You know, and, and I have to say, I think the editing is absolutely brilliant. There's so many incredible metaphors within the editing. And, and I really learned, I learned a lot about, about it. I also learned how hard it is to make a movie. Like it's hard to make a record, but honestly, it's about a hundred times harder to make a movie. It really is. I had no idea. Did you say 250 hours of footage? Yeah. Yeah. That's what, that's what we gave Danny to go through and, and Taryn and Colleen. And, and uh, so, yeah, it was just a lot of stuff. And there was also, in addition to that, there was also many, many hours of just voice recordings. Like Shannon taped everything. Like he always kept his, um, you know, back in the answering machine days. Yeah. He kept all those. So that was a record. That was almost a journal alone, just listening to his voice messages. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, you know, as you can tell from the movie, he films his conversations with people. You know, he filmed everything. So, um, but yeah, man, I couldn't be happier. And the re reviews came out and they were, and they were, you know, everyone loved it and it's been well received. And we won a couple film festivals. So, I mean, honestly, I feel validated because here's the truth. While we're making this movie, a lot of people didn't believe in it. You know what I mean? We had, we had a lot of discouraging, you know, we had a lot of discouraging moments, I would say. Lots of times we couldn't get financing. We just couldn't get to the next level. But I tell you, man, Danny and uh, Colleen and Taryn, they never gave up. You know, props to Danny. Like, you know, he took money out of his pocket to get this film made. You know, he, he was like, we are, we are getting this to the finish line. And they did. And, and there were so many times I, I thought, we're not getting to the finish line. We tried our hardest. It's not going to happen, you know. So I, I'm beyond grateful and, and so proud of it. I think it's an amazing piece of art. 
I don't think you have to like my band. I think you can hate my band and still like the damn, the, the documentary just because it's such a time capsule of, 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 of that time period. And, and um, it's just about what we went through, you know, what he went through. Yeah, it, it is incredible. And I mean, I watched it last night again. I had to rewatch it before this. I just, and it is, it's beautiful. It's heart wrenching. It's, I don't know. It's just, it's original. Like, yeah, I think like, so too. To keep it with just the footage, I agree. And, and no commentary, no exactly. no breaks. It's, exactly. it's incredible. Yeah, no, it, it's an incredible feat. What they did was super difficult, and they did an incredible job. They really did. I could, just could not be happier. Yeah, to to establish a narrative without actually talking and only using that footage, it's hard. Very hard, and I'm. It got me thinking, like. I was wondering how much footage they had to comb through. And you said there was even a four hour cut. I'm, I'm wondering two, two questions. What didn't make the final cut from the four hour cut? Uh, so many things. Like I, anything that you think I mean, should just, have been there or what? I mean, no, just, there's just little moments. There was a trailer. There was a trailer that happened like a teaser before anyone really kind of saw the movie. And there was a couple scenes in there that, you know, I miss. But I also trust the people who made the film, like Taryn and Danny and Colleen. So even when I'm like, oh, man, how come that scene's gone? You know, they're like, well, blah, blah, blah. So I trust them, you know. But there's so much footage, man. I mean, honestly, the outtakes alone, like the stuff that's not in the movie is, there's so much stuff. But, you know, some stuff didn't tie in this part to this part. So even though this little clip is super cool, like maybe it doesn't tie in these two pieces that they need. So that's got to go away. And, you know. Yeah. Is there going to be like a DVD with extra deleted yes, scenes? Yes, there or? is. Yeah. I just found out and I can't, I think I can't say what's happening, who the person is, who's going to mod, you know, like when you talk about the film, like the extras on the DVD. Director's cut kind of thing. Yeah. Like I'm pretty commentary. sure, I'm pretty sure what's going on is somebody that everybody knows who is uh, an amazing movie maker is going to, um, I think he's going to, you know, talk to Danny, Taryn and Colleen and that, that will be part of the footage. That will be part of the extras on the DVD. So yeah, there'll be some real goodies in the extra in the, uh, in the DVD version for sure. Now outside of that four hours, what kind of stuff didn't even make the four hour cut? What's some like just deep cut behind the scenes footage that we didn't Well, obviously see? there's, you know, there was some drug stuff. And there was a lot of debate as to how much goes in and comes out. You know what I mean? So there was, there was, a, there was some discussions about that stuff. You know what I mean? And, and who do you indict? You know what I mean? Shannon's <laughs> right. gone. So, he, you know, he's not going to be indicted. You know what I mean? So <laughs> some of us are still around. So how much of that stuff, you know, stuff like that, stuff like that. Right. I got you. And there's like, you know, probably a hundred of the hours are him, you know, being naked. So like how many naked shots do you need? You know what I mean? So all of them, all of them. Yeah. He took his clothes <laughs> off a lot. So sometimes it's like, okay, we got that covered. He took his clothes off all the time. We get it. We get it. You know? So some of those things are kind of, you know, probably didn't make the cut, you know? <laughs> I remember um, hearing Roger mention one, one time he tried to get away by just going to the bathroom and just get a 20 minutes to himself. And then he looks up and Shannon's over top of the stall with the camera. The story, man, that was Shannon all the time. You couldn't, you couldn't escape it. You know, it used to drive us crazy. Now I'm grateful that he filmed, but in the moment I was like, dude, get that camera out of here. My God, it drove me nuts. I hated it. Yeah, it is. It's such a gift to have now. I, I get that 
that sentiment of like being in the moment and not taking the picture. But then like looking back on all events, you're, I wish we had a group picture. I wish we had a little bit more. I know, more. I know. You're grateful you have it, but you're right. In the moment you go like, well, let's just enjoy the moment. But then like, you also want to be able to revisit it. So it's hard. <laughs> I know it is. So what was it like when the camera was off? Well, I don't remember the difference because the camera, <laughs> I mean, I really don't like it. What it didn't really feel that way. It wasn't like, Oh, now we can be ourselves. Cause Shannon took, you know, took turn the camera off. First of all, he stuck a little piece of black tape over the red dot. So you didn't know when he was filming or didn't film. So many times he's, you're having a conversation like this and he's just holding the camera like this. He's not, he's not even doing this. He's just, he's doing this with us. And you're like, dude, are you filming or not? And he wouldn't tell you, he just had the black dot over. So at some point it wasn't like, you know, we didn't change because the camera wasn't around because we just got so used to it and we didn't know if it was on or off ever. We just didn't, you know, at some point you just let it go, you know? Was that right from day one? Like when you met him, he had the camera and that was... Man, I mean, pretty, pretty soon, pretty quick. I mean, maybe not right when I met him, but pretty quick after that, he bought a camera and then that camera was around, you know, that camera was around. Yeah, because like when we're getting a record deal, that's all filmed and that's all him. So by then he already has his, uh, you know, he has his camera, you know, and then from that point forward, he just, it's just, you know, filmed everything. Yeah. And then the, the way they end it. And I mean, it is the way it actually ended. It was the night of just such a powerful shot and it's sideways. It's almost like it was meant to, meant to be, unfortunately. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That night happened i think i recall you saying that it just it wasn't anything out of the ordinary and it wasn't even as bad as some other nights it so wasn't what, what happened that night i think i mean I, we really don't know that's really the answer i mean we really don't fully know um but we know that you know he had been sober previous to that so you know he had been sober for a little bit of time and then starting in los angeles we were on tour and then los angeles over to new orleans that's the party kind of started back up you know what happened was is Lisa and Nico, his daughter and girlfriend were on the bus with us from like Vancouver down the West coast. And he was super great and super sober and everyone was getting along great. And Nico was on the bus and it was, I was like, Oh, this is cool. This is like the next version of us where there's like kids on the bus and we're what we're better behaved. And like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I'm like, Oh cool. We're getting to be adults. This is cool. I like, I liked it. I loved Nico being on the bus, you know, I felt less crazy. But when Nico left, the crazy begun, you know, it was right back to the crazy, you know, and, and not super crazy, but enough that, you know, in the ultimately it, you know, it, he passed away from, you know? Yeah. Was it like, when did it become apparent that he, he needed help or did it? I mean, he needed help. I mean, now in hindsight, he had a problem the day I met him, you know what I mean? And, and we had struggled with his, uh, you know, matter of fact, there's a scene us getting our uh signing our record deal on capital and shannon's not supposed to not be drinking he makes some comment about like oh you know i'm not supposed to be you know so we it was always a problem he was getting arrested and like beating people up in california and in la and it was always like oh shannon's arrested again so he knew so one of the reasons why we went to north carolina was to get away from him kind of doing drugs and partying too much that was actually one of the reasons why we left los angeles and moved to North Carolina. We thought we're not gonna be able to make a record or write a record if we stay in Los Angeles because every day there's a party to go to. So we got him. We got we got out of town, and that helped a lot. And he, you know, we we did really great in North Carolina, and got a lot lot done. So it was always up and down. You know, he went he went like a whole year without drinking one year, and it was amazing. You know, and and like 
I don't think he got arrested that whole year, you know, but then, you know, then he breaks his sobriety and, you know, it was, it was a roller coaster. But you know, at that time in your twenties, I didn't even, you know, I didn't know how to help somebody. I'm going through shit myself. So it's like, we didn't really have the tools as people, I would say, to understand how to help somebody near the end of our career. We were bringing in professionals to help do interventions with Shannon and to help at that point, you know, but before that, we just didn't know. We didn't know. Yeah. And then, I mean, the shock of that would just be debilitating. What, what was on the, on the docket for like the, the year to come? Like, was there plans that obviously were unmet, but like what was planned for the next little bit? Yeah, it's a bummer for us. That's a good question, actually, because what we were really excited about is, um, and I think actually Shannon might say something on that last bit of footage. He might mention it, but Shannon called Neil Young Uncle Neil. He just always called him Uncle Neil as if it was his uncle, you know. <laughs> we were such fans, and we had toured, we had toured with Neil, and, and um, not that we were close to him like that, but, you know, we, we, called, we called Neil Young Uncle Neil all the time. So Shannon was like, oh, we were all pumped because we were after New Orleans – after, so we were going to play Tip and Tina's, which we didn't get, you know, he passed away that day, so we didn't get there. But I think after Tip and Tina's, we were maybe driving back to uh, Uncle Neil's house because we were going to do the Bridge School Benefit. So we were super pumped about that because that was one, you, you know, it was an honor just to be invited to that thing. And we were such, you know, Neil fans just to be able to hang out with Neil at his ranch and like, you know what I mean? So like, that was one of the things we were super pumped up about. The other thing that's a little painful is like we sold out two nights at the Roseland Ballroom in New York. That was one of the next shows I think that was. Maybe we were going to do Roseland and then Roseland, then we were going to do Bridge School. Whatever it was, the next couple things that we had coming up, we were really looking forward to, you know. Yeah. So many plans unmet. Yeah. Yeah. Now, if – if this never happened, do you think Blind Melon would still be going strong? I mean, I'd like to think that we would be going strong. I really do. I really do. I actually do. I actually do. I don't know who would have been in the band and, you know, who, which, which guys would have stuck around, but I imagined, you know, the core guys. I, I don't know. I, I do. I think we would have stuck it out. I mean, we had something really special and, you know, yeah, I do. I think, and, and, it, and it really pains me because, I just felt like we didn't even reach our full potential. You know, I just felt like we were going to rediscover and reinvent in a little bit. Cause you see how different record one to record two is, you know what I mean? And I'm not comparing my, our, ourselves to Radiohead, but they were our, uh, not competition is the wrong word, but I think they were pushing us. You know what I mean? Like when, every time they released a record, you're like, Oh shit, God damn, this sounds so good. So I felt like they would have, you know, Push, we would have pushed each other maybe, or they would have pushed us to make better records. And I could, I could see ourselves having a career more like them. Maybe we wouldn't have had, you know, hit after hit like that, but I think we would have made amazing records and probably would have been playing to our fan base for the rest of our lives and done quite well. I, I really do. I really think we would have come up with some great material. <clears throat> yeah, that was, that was the time of my life. I'm, I was born in 86 and just getting into music with Nirvana and you guys and the Grateful Dead and Radiohead and everything. And just those two years of Shannon, Kurt, Jerry, it was just a really weird thing to experience as such a very young person that yeah. didn't really 
and life and death at that point and was yeah. just getting my toes wet in music. And it just, I don't know, like I still remember those feelings, however I interpreted them at the time. But I, I remember my introduction to music was very dark in a way. That's interesting and something I never thought about. And it's funny that you say that because there was a time like when Anthony Bourdain died and Chris died and Chester died and God damn, man, the list is so long. I'm, I'm, I'm forgetting, you know, five other people. But, you know, my son, same thing. My son, you know, at that point is 10, 11. And I'm like, and like Anthony Bourdain was our favorite person to watch. And, you know, so like, it's funny you say that perspective. I never thought about that. But when I think about my own son, I go, yeah, he must have a crazy sense of that too. Because there was a time in his life when he's finally getting turned on to music and Chris Cornell and all these, you know, icons, and then they're taking themselves out. And it, it really scared me. I had many conversations with my son about it, just going, you know, because it's scary when somebody that maybe you consider a hero takes themselves out. That's a bad fucking message, man. That is a bad message. So it scared me when that was happening too. It's, it's interesting to hear you say that. Yeah. And just to take it a step further, like with, with Kurt, that was the first time I'd ever heard of for like the 27 club. So then you start to look back and I mean, Jimi Hendrix was a huge inspiration for me playing guitar growing up sure. to find out Jimmy was 27 and yeah. just to hear the names and to, like you said, to associate music with pain and, and then the way they've, they all left us. Yeah. It was, just a very weird realization into the music industry. Yeah. Like introduction to, to music, like I, I said. I can see that. That makes sense. You know, at one point, and this has been said before, um, I, at one point, I remember, I think Glenn walked into Shannon's apartment. This was at the very beginning of Blind Melon. And, and I think he noticed, hey, Shannon, everybody on your walls, every poster that you have hanging up, they're all dead. You know, like every hero he had was dead. That's odd. It is odd. Very, you know? very, very odd. And you yeah. idolize those people. And I don't know why. And you do. And I did too. But I don't know why. But you do. And I see it happening from, from uh, I see it happening with Shannon. You know, people idolizing the fact that he's, you know, not, there's something, you know, extra because he's not here. And it's just, I don't know, it feels dangerous to me. It definitely is. And it's, I think it goes back to what we talked about before with the, the powerful lyrics that, it almost becomes scripture to music lovers and the, the people that write them become a sort of a Messiah because they can, they write lyrics that look into our soul. And yep. it's the first time that we've heard anything that really relates to how we feel in the, in the dark. You know what I mean? That's it. That's it. And I think that's why you have that connection to any artist that you love is you feel like they are speaking for you to you, all those things, you know? Yeah. And you mentioned the Rolling Stone cover. What was, for, I just, general question, what was that like? Well, it was pretty crazy uh, for multiple reasons. One, we never thought that was going to be the cover. That was not a trick. I wouldn't say a trick, but like we went to Austin and took these great shots in the water, like in the river and stuff. And it was like kind of our, like, it was like our Almond Brothers vibe. We're in the water with our, you know, shirts off. And we thought that was going to be the cover. And then they were like, let's do one more shoot in New York City. So we go to New York City. And first of all, it was awkward because, you know, you're doing a naked photo shoot. And you're like, how come there's like five girls from the record company here are here today, but they've never, ever been here to a photo shoot before? And it just was a really awkward moment. You know what I mean? <laughs> you got a bunch of dudes with their, you know, 
balls hanging out. It's just, it was a really weird, we were laughing and playing it off. I mean, Shannon was happy to be naked, you know, but none of, of us, none of us had that same vibe as he did with the getting naked all the time, you know. So it was awkward, but you know, when it finally came out, you know, you're, it's just back to feeling surreal. To this day, when I look at it, when I look at that cover, it looks like I went to Disneyland. You know, you can go to Disneyland and get your picture taken with like, you know, entertainment magazine or like, you know what I mean? They like mock it up for you. To this mm -hmm. day, when I see it, I'm like, that just looks like I went to Disneyland and did one of those fake pictures, you know. <laughs> Photo booth. Photo booth. <laughs> it, it, it still looks unreal to me when I see it. I, I will say that for sure. I mean, but that's the ultimate dream, you know, that's like one of those things, like, as a boy, that was, that exceeded my dreams. You know, I had a dream of like, man, I'd like to have a record deal. Okay, that happened. Man, I want a gold record. I always thought gold records were so cool. I want, want to give my parents a gold record, you know. And like, being on the cover of Rolling Stone isn't even attainable. That's like, that's like, that's like next level dreaming, you know. So when that happens for you, before you've even gotten a chance to dream about it, you're just like, what just happened? Holy cow, you know. Trip. Who, stupid question. Whose idea was it to be naked? You know what? Uh, not ours. And I don't know <laughs> if it was a record company thing. You know, I think Rolling Stone was having some good luck, like around that time, like the Janet Jackson, like with her boobies out and like, yeah. I think you yeah, had the Chili Peppers with their socks on on the cover. And I think they probably realized you could sell another few copies of, you know, <laughs> I don't think they realized what our bodies looked like and maybe it didn't come true when they put us naked. Cause that's, that's what was so funny. Like the chili peppers are all ripped and they do sit ups and we're a bunch of fucking hippies. You know what I mean? Like hot <laughs> smoking, you know, donut eating hippies. And so it just was odd for us to be like, yeah, we're going to be naked on the cover. You know? So, uh, but we laughed, we laughed a lot. We laughed a lot during that. Time. We also took another shot that I thought that we really wanted to be the, the cover. And you could look, you could find this, shot on the internet somewhere but there's a very famous beatles picture where they're dressed like in white kind of suits and they um they're like chopping up a baby it's like a very famous beatles shot that like you know like you know leaked out or something so we did the same thing with the b-girl we all dressed in like these white suits i think we even had like face makeup or something and we're all basically we have a doll that looks like the B girl and like we're each holding a limb and she's kind of like, it's basically we're saying enough of the B girl. Can we fucking move on? And that's really the cover that we wanted. You know what I mean? But I think it was just too, you know, too much for the record company and the, and the, you know, and, and Rolling Stone. So they went with the naked shot. Did that B girl picture ever see the light of day? You know what? You can find it somewhere on the internet. Yeah. It's, it's definitely a rare, it's definitely more of a rare shot. Mark Seliger was the photographer on, on all those. He, he did a couple sessions. We did, like I said, one in Austin, I think, somewhere outside of Austin, and then, and then New York City. So that's all Mark Seliger's photographs. He did a great nice. job. That's awesome. Are there any unreleased songs from the, like the Shannon Hoon era? Oh, yeah. So where are they? <laughs> <laughs> no, there's a couple. There's not much, but there's a couple. I mean, a lot's gotten leaked, unfortunately, through the internet in a bad way, like a bad version of it. So, but we actually are working on uh, an acoustic, like kind of a Shannon Blind Melon acoustic record. I have um, kind of, I've been organizing everything and, and it's like, it's really cool to hear the song stripped down. The, the versions of the songs are really fantastic. I'm really pretty pumped about it. It's something we're working on now. Any timeline for that? Not really. We're trying to figure it out. I've been working on it and the guys are talking about it. And I, I think I have a list of 
26, 27 sort of acoustic recordings. Some of it was done in Mammoth at the Mammoth Sessions. You know, I traveled with a recording studio during that time. So I, ha I had like a lot of just, you know, him like, hey, let me just record this. And, and sometimes it might be a version of San Andreas Hall or, you know, some other song or Skinned, the demo is Skinned or, you know. So it's like a lot of that stuff is still stuff to come out. And we also got just turned on to, I forget how many hours, but it, like an astronomical amount of hours of live recordings. So our front of house uh, guy, Jamie, who works with us, is actually in New York right now doing all the transfers of all these live shows. And um, so we're going to be putting up a ton of live shows over the next, I think my manager said we have enough live shows to release one a month for like 14 years or something. <laughs> There's a lot. <laughs> that's awesome. So that's yeah. coming soon, you say? Yeah, we're working on that. That's actually being worked on right now. And then... Um, I had a great conversation with Raj Parasher, who was Rick Parasher's brother. Rick is the producer for the first record. Rick has passed away, but Raj looks, looks out after his estate. And we just, I hadn't spoken to him in 25 years. And I talked to him the other day and he said, there's some two inch tape here of Blind Melon with some outtakes and stuff that I think you're going to want. So we're getting those tapes and I'll wind up mixing those as well. So I'm, I'm anxious to see what's on the two inch tapes. That's awesome. Yeah. Like yeah. really exciting. I, I, I think I knew that there was some unreleased stuff and just some B-side recordings. and There's stuff around. Yeah, there's yeah. still stuff around. I still uncover stuff, you know. I came across a tape. I mean, I came across a song that I know no one's ever heard. Um, and it was on like my cassette recorder. I used to use a cassette recorder as like an idea tape. And a couple of years ago, I was like just listening to it. And Shannon came on out of nowhere because he would borrow my cassette player just if he had an idea, you know. So there's a song called I'm a Dreamer, which I think is fantastic that nobody's ever heard, that never saw the light of day. So, yeah. Give it to me. <laughs> ah, there's some good stuff. It's coming up. You know what record, I, you know what record I'm working on that I, I don't know if I even said it, but I have to say it. Like Travis's solo record I've been working on the last week, and it's going to be fantastic. I'm excited about that one, too. Nice. Travis Warren has a new solo record that's going to be really good. I'm really pumped about it. Everyone's been kind of helping out. Even though it's his solo record, it's... It's really me, Rogers, and Nathan, and, you know, everyone really but Glenn, who hurt his knee recently. Um, so, yeah, we've all been working on Travis's solo record. It's been really fun, so I'm pretty pumped about that. And I got to play drums on a few songs, so I'm kind of pumped about that. That's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure fans will be really excited about that. Definitely. Well, we'll see. After they hear it, maybe not so much. <laughs> we'll have to see. We'll have to see. Do you, when you produce, um, do you, play on a lot of the stuff like do they often ask you to play almost always i would say um i would say most of the records that i'm producing like especially if i'm working with like you know a single artist you know what i mean i'm usually uh playing you know a bunch and also like many times people are working off of my demos so on my demos i'm usually playing all the instruments and then sometimes i will you know replace then you know somebody who plays bass better than me nathan will <laughs> you know, replace my part and stuff. So, but yeah, a lot of this, I did a lot of singer songwriter records and I'm always, you know, you get like a bunch, if I'm producing, I can play a bunch of instruments for you. And I'm, I usually am playing a bunch. Yeah. yeah. So I had a bunch of questions sent in. I'm going to try to get to a few of them. Oh, um, great. I love it. <laughs> one of the questions just right in this vein was what fueled the decision to get into producing? Oh, that's a good question. Um, sometime, 
I was always the guy that had like a four track recorder and I was always into that process, you know, but at some point I knew I wanted to make records forever. <clears throat> I knew that was just the most important thing to me. And I also think a part of me saw the writing on the wall with Bly Mellon. It was very, I just didn't know, you know, I just never knew how long it was going to last and all that. And, and I think during the soup recording, we, we made it at a place called Kingsway, which is owned by a guy named Dan Lenoir. And at that point, I, it really hit me. Like, I really want to be a producer. Like, when I saw, when I heard Dan's records, you know, you know, whether it was those U2 records or the Dylan record he made or the, you know, Neville Brothers and like, you know, all this amazing stuff and being around the gear at Kingsway, like, I just was like, so I was intoxicated by like microphones and like, I just was so turned on, you know what I mean? About the whole process. And I just thought, well, this is all I want to do. So when we made money, I didn't buy a fancy car. I actually drove a shitty car, but I, I bought a board that's worth, you know, as much as a Porsche, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> actually more, now that I think about it, this is actually worth more than a Porsche. But anyway, <laughs> so it's just what was important to me. I just knew I wanted to make records and I just was so turned on by Dan Lenoir and like, his process, I was kind of studying him because we were working at Kingsway, which was his studio. So some of the assistants, even though Andy Wallace was producing our record, some of the assistants were like, uh, you know, Dan Lenoir's assistants. So I was like picking their brain every night. I was like, you know, what about, you know, how, did, how does he do this? How does he do this? And Andy Wallace, who was making the soup record with us, was so kind and so sweet. And, you know, I told him I wanted to be a producer and I was Throughout the day, I was like kind of asking him questions and driving him nuts. And at some point, I'll never forget, he said to me, hey, man, I don't mind. You just got to wait to the end of the day because like I'm in a flow here. You know what I mean? So so sure enough, at the end of the night, like I literally would have like a list of questions like, why did you use the LA two-way on the base? Like, you know what I mean? Blah, blah, blah. And like I was just so like OCD about everything. Like I would go and look at his EQ settings and write down, oh, okay, he turned up 60 hertz on the base and turned down 500 hertz. And I was like. So I, it just really hit me at that point. I just was obsessed with making recordings. So when did you actually start doing some producing? Right then, right around the making of Soup. Well, no, before that, actually, even before Soup, um, you know, I had met Jenna Krause. And at that point, I had um, a recording studio, which was like a, you know, giant road case. Now it's a laptop. But back in those days, it was a five foot tall road case that weighed I don't even know like you know crew guys would put it in my room for me every night and I'd record every night you know and I was recording like Jenna demos on tour so it was like you know I'm she might come to the show in Baltimore I'd be like hey meet me in DC and, and we'll record a demo in my hotel room that night so I wound up getting her a record deal and that was the very first girl the first artist that I got a record deal I got her publishing deal and I got a record deal I did the demos shopped her and got her a record deal. And then during the soup recording, no, during mixing the soup record in New York City, Andy Wallace went to New York, we all went to New York to mix it. I um, was so obsessed with Jeff Buckley. And I remember Jeff Buckley got discovered out of this little uh, coffee shop called Shanae. So I'm like, oh shit, I wanna go to Shanae and find the next Jeff Buckley, you know? And I walked in and I found this girl named Amy Korea who just knocked me out. I was so blown away by her. And I just said, hey, I'm Christopher, blah, blah, blah. I'm building a studio in Seattle. If you ever want to come hang out, make some recordings, give me a call. Sure enough, she did. And so that was like the next artist that I got a record deal for. And then, that, and then I just was on my way, you know. And by then I had bought the gear, you know, and I had a studio in Seattle. I built a studio in Seattle at that time. So I was well on my way to, to producing records at that point. 
Now, did you take any control of the Blind Melon production? During that time, not, not any more so than anybody else in the band, I will say. So, like, when we're making, you know, soup in the first record, we're all in there and we all, you know, we're all giving our opinion about stuff and that's more of a collaboration. I mean, now I'm a little more the quarterback, you know, in the band because, you know, I'm here, so everyone, I mean, because of COVID, we're making this record remotely and, you know, luckily everybody is a great engineer and everybody has great gear. So, like, the song will get written and it'll get sent to Glenn. He'll play drums. He'll send his drums back to me. I make them sound great. And then prepare the track, send it to somebody else. The bass goes on it. And then, you know, same thing. Bass comes back to me. I make sure everything sounds good. Resend out stems to everybody. Rogers plays on it. So it's kind of that kind of that process for, for me now. But back in the day, we were all involved. It wasn't, I didn't have any more input, I would say, than anybody else, you know. Maybe a little more only. No, I wouldn't say that. We all had fucking opinions. <laughs> <laughs> So you're recording remotely right now. What, is there a LP on the horizon? Like, do you have a date set or anything like that? We don't have a date set, but we released four songs, I guess, so far. And then there's a new one coming out uh, in the next few weeks. Probably we'll get another one out. We're just kind of releasing them just to kind of keep people happy. And then we'll release the whole thing as a record at some point. And then a tour, hopefully. Well, hey, man. God, yeah, we hope, you know. It's such a bummer. We were supposed to be playing Red Rocks, you know. Uh, I think this month we were on... Yeah, I think or last month was August. We had a Red Rock show with AOR. So, I mean, we hope. I mean, you know, we don't really know, right? How are we coming right. out of this? I don't know what it's going to look like. You know, I really, we really don't know what promoters are around anymore, what clubs are available, how many clubs went under. You know, the whole thing's going to be different. Do we want a tour? You bet we want a tour. It's killing us. Yeah. Are you going to try to do any of the things that they're doing right now? Like there's, they've been doing drive-in shows or like any type of webcast kind of thing. Have you guys you know, talked about that? The drive-in show doesn't really interest me. I don't, it doesn't really interest me. It just doesn't. I don't, it just feels weird, you know. I mean, yeah. talk to me in a year and a half. If I still haven't played a show, I might be like, please, let me play a drive-in, you know. But I don't know. There's just something about, there's just something about the energy being exchanged from people being close. That is, there is something to that. You know what I mean? There is something about being, you know, like this and the energy. I don't know that you're going to feel that at a drive-in, you know. I appreciate people trying and people pivoting and trying to figure it out. So I'm, I'm, I think it's cool people are trying to figure it out. But when I see myself on that stage playing to people in their cars or people, I don't know, that just feels weird to me. Yeah. I'm not you. sure I'm ready for that yet. And the web stuff, the web stuff is tough to get right. You know what I mean? So we haven't tried that yet. Um, we've done some other kind of things, but we haven't done the thing where everyone's playing at the same time. Right. Uh, Brett Thurston sent this in. What was the MTV Unplugged experience like at the time? Was it like any other show? And what's it like to look back on knowing it's still one of the most beloved performances of the era? We didn't do MTV Unplugged, but we did Much Music Unplugged, which is kind of their version. Think, so yeah, we must yeah, be yeah. talking about that. You know, that was cool, actually. That was a unique thing because it, it was a more kind of stripped down version. And we actually brought in a cello player. And that was actually a fun experience. And people were right there asking questions and stuff. And, yeah, we had a good – and I thought Shannon did really well. I mean, he was together then. He was, had his shit together that day. And, yeah, I thought that was a fun experience, actually. I do remember that day. Yeah, it was cool. What's one of the most memorable performances? Like if you, if someone just said favorite show of all time. Well, if you say memorable, that's different. Halloween. Yeah. 
You know what I mean? You know what I mean? It's that's that is my answer. You know what I mean? If right. if, if you're asking me the, the one show, I, you know, I'll never fucking forget the rest of my life. You know, it's gonna be it's gonna be Halloween for sure, and fun, really fun. You know, right. I'm, I'm like that was that's rock and roll, man. I got no problem with that. Sorry, you got of, sorry, you got punk rock. on you. <laughs> Shit happens. It's rock and roll. Um, <laughs> But, you know, God, man, there were just so many shows. There's another show that I'll never forget, like, probably because it's near the very beginning. Like, we went and toured Mexico with Guns N' Roses before our record was out. So, in theory, no one should really know who we are. But we're opening up for Guns N' Roses, so they just, you know, in Mexico, they just think we're superstars in America. So, they, they kind of didn't know any better. So, we're getting treated with that love. And they, they got nothing but love down there, too. You know what I mean? They, they really show their love, you know. South America too, they show their love more down there. So, um, but Mexico, wonderful audiences. I'll never forget, cause I'd never seen this. We were playing the end of Deserted. And uh, this is back in the day when people had lighters. And I remember, Classic. and we were playing, um, we weren't playing arenas, we were playing stadiums. And there's a huge difference, you know, an arena is 20,000 and a stadium is like 90,000. So we we're playing to 90,000 people in Mexico. And I'll never forget, they were turning on their lighters to the beat of Deserted. And I just, I remember just getting, I get goosebumps just thinking about it. You know what I mean? I just was like, it was almost, it was almost so overwhelming. Like it was hard to focus to play the song because it just felt so like going back to what I'm talking about, 90,000 people sharing a space together and we're all one. We're all on the beat together for God's sakes. I mean, that's just a powerful moment. You know, you really feel like, wow, we're in this together right now in this moment. We're sharing this moment, you know. Yeah, so that's another a, one. Just like a time capsule. Incredible. It that was incredible. An, amazing, an amazing moment for us. But yeah, there's so many amazing shows. They're hard to all keep track of, you know. Yeah. My son, Michael, wanted to know, what's your favorite song to play? Oh, good question, Michael. Um, probably Soup. Yeah. The song Soup, I would say. Yeah, 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 yeah. That one, nice. that one, that one always feels like a moment on stage. Cool. And who is your favorite person to just jam with? My son. Oh yeah. That, good answer. Yeah. So you talked about it. Are you guys doing something? Like, do you think you'll actually do a project together? I do. Yeah. Yeah. We're working on it right now. That reminds me of like Jeff Tweedy and his son. Yeah. Which is a great record, by the way. It is. Very that record great. he made with his, his, is great actually i love that record so yeah i think i think uh i think we're working on that right now that's awesome that's exciting because <laughs> yeah. I, I i look forward to doing the same thing so i just right it's the best it's, feeling you know it really is yeah um, outside of my son rogers is my favorite play person to play with because he's the only one that i've ever done besides my son rogers was the first person that i learned to kind of like you know play around with in between you know we do a thing that i don't do with any other guitar player you know what i mean right so um you know we we definitely we don't talk about it we don't barely look at each other but somehow we just know we know how to weave around one another yeah yeah and that feels special to me i don't i don't have that with too too many people my son and rogers are probably the only two people i can kind of do that that with well when you get that kind of chemistry with another musician it it does just it is it is a great feeling because you're not trying and you're not worried about what they're going to do you're not worried about what yourself's going to do you just yeah. you just play and it just kind of happens it is a it good just feeling it kind of happens it feels like a conversation between two people when it's done right it feels like a great conversation between two people and it's about really listening you know and i, I really learned that in blind melon because we 
started our career with just jamming. Before we even tried to write songs, we, you know, we spent a lot of time just jamming. You know what I mean? Two notes or one note. Oh, key of A. Okay. You know, like for hours. And you learn how to listen and you really learn. I learned how to play in Blind Melon for sure. Yep. We, I mentioned the, like the unreleased stuff before with the Shannon era. What about uh, the For My Friends era? Is there any unreleased music? Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm actually working on that right now, too, as a matter of fact. I just came up with um, – it's funny. So For My Friends is getting, is getting re-released, and I think right now I have eight, like, demos, uh, you know, versions of songs that, are, that we're going to add to the record and put the record out again. So, yeah, like really cool demos. Like there's a cool demo of uh, with The Right Set of Eyes and Harmful Belly and um, – the song for my friends and hypnotized. And so there's like either, either cool little demo versions of them or, you know, like little extras will be added to that record. Awesome. And that's yeah. something, that's something that's like teed up. Like we're doing that now. That's something we're so trying to soon. Do. Soon that record should come out. Yeah. Awesome. So you've got the new single is in the very best way, I believe was the yeah, last one. That in the very best way I think was the last one. And then what was the one right before that one? Um, way down far below, too many to count in the very best way. And Fence, one of my favorite yep. songs Travis ever wrote. Yeah. So those are the four songs that are out right now. Nice. And we got a couple more, got more coming, you said, yeah, pretty we, soon. We, yeah, we should have a, a, another one all teed up. Like there's a bunch in play right now. So I'm just kind of teeing up which one's next, you know. But there's a song called Strikes Back, which is one of my favorite songs. That, that I've written with, with Travis, actually, and um, that's going to be the next one. And um, the string player from the Afghan Wigs did a beautiful string section to it, so we're pretty excited about that one. That's, that's teed up next. Awesome. Well, this has been an absolute pleasure for me. Thank you so much for doing this. One question I had, I, w I wasn't sure if I was going to ask it. If you could say anything to Shannon Hoon right now, what would it be? Oh, that's a tough one. Oh, boy, that's a tough one. Well, I'd say we got your movie made like I promised you is what I'd say. That's awesome. Yeah. Chris, and I, and then I'd say, you motherfucker. You motherfucker, where are you? You know what I mean? There's a bit of that in me, too. I'd want, honestly, I'd, if I saw him, I always say to people, if I see him, I'm going to punch him in his face. You know, what the fuck were you thinking, man? We're all waiting on you. We're all here for you. The fuck? That's what I'd say. First thing I'd say is we got your movie made for you, just like I promised. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Christopher yeah. Thorne. Thank you. Thanks, so Chris. Much. Appreciate it. Thank you Take so much. Take care, everybody. Love y'all. Be safe. See you, buddy.
Seen him smile in a little while. Haven't seen him smile in a little while. 